0: There's five. Romans chapter 10, again, we have to always kind of wind up with this verse before we go into chapter 11. This message will be designed to continue our study of Romans, but it's also going to move us into a next, a definite, definitive phase of teaching, which I'll describe toward the end if we get there. This is Communion Sunday, by the way, coming up. And all are welcome. Might even have a New Year's Eve nuance to it a little bit, but all right, let's take a couple of moments to prepare ourselves. Father, beyond just studying the written word, we pray that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus will shine in our hearts tonight, in the hearts of all who hear this message, and shine out from our hearts in a life and a livingness that manifests our Messiah. We thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for each one who's opted to be here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight is a history lesson, and I hope you'll see what I mean by the time we're done. Romans 10.20, I always have to kind of back up and get a running start with this last two verses because it's the occasion for why Paul begins Romans eleven one with a question. So he says, verse 20, but Isaiah comes out boldly, And speaking for Yahweh says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. The question is, does this mean that we would have the right by concluding of this, that God has de- rejected his people or abandoned his people, Paul actually asked that question in 11.1. I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? The rhetorical question demands this answer, and Paul gives it. Absolutely not. That's unthinkable, he says, for I myself am also an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. We've already taught in some detail about how Paul became the paradigm of God's salvific action toward Israel that will one day be all Israel being saved. So Paul gets very dogmatic here in verse 2a and says, God has not rejected his people whom he previously elected. So it's important that we see Romans. following directly after Romans 10.21, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks through Isaiah to Israel, describes them as defiant and disobedient, a people to whom he holds out his hands all day long. This phrase is a key phrase, all day long speaks of Israel throughout the entirety of its history. We're talking about history when we look at the word or the phrase all day long. We find it again in Romans 8, 36, all day long. We, like sheep, are led to the slaughter, but we're more than conquerors in all that adversity. One of the reasons for that is what I'm going to teach you tonight. All day long. Because of Jesus the Messiah... And because of the eschatological event, let's do a couple of abbreviations that'll be important for the coming year. H is history, E, epsilon, you can make that a Greek E if you want, because we're going to talk about a thing called Operation Epsilon, H-E, history, eschatology. There is history, there is eschatology, there is history versus eschatology and this will mean a distinction of consciousness or a differentiation of consciousness. So we'll use this symbol. I use all these when I go through a book like I'm going through now with Richard Bauckham, The Study of Jürgen Moltmann's Theology. I go through it, I have an index before the book. I have my own system. I do history, I do eschatology, I do theology, I do rhetoric, I do hermeneutics like this, I do homardiology, the study of sin, I do this for soteriology, I do a lot of different things, this for horizons, HZ. So I have developed this system over the past couple of decades, so I read all these theology books, and then I have probably 50 or 60 different abbreviations like this. So the only things we need tonight really... Well, the most important one is really this, the key, Christ, Christology. Then there's TTG for the triune God. and there's pneumatology, which I use the Greek letter P-N. And so there's all kinds of them. But the main things we need tonight are history and eschatology. And there is a, another thing I have an abbreviation for is DOC which is a differentiation of consciousness, which we find in Hebrews 4.12, in which the scripture says, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating or piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So there's a divi- a division or a distinction that's made in our consciousness about things. Once we understand certain things as they're distinct from others, it really opens up a spiritual understanding and a spiritual Perspective. So it's important that we see all day long as speaking of history because of Jesus, the Messiah, however, and because of the eschatological event of his crucifixion, death, resurrection, the history of Israel's disobedience and defiance is not sufficient in itself to define Israel. What Israel did in history does not ultimately define Israel. What you did in your history does not ultimately define you. What you did in your history in the Adamic ontology doesn't figure with God. Something happened eschatology, eschatologically with finality. That is both in history and beyond history that defines you. And that's where we're going, as we're always aiming toward Romans 11.32. God consigned, historically speaking, he consigned all Jews and all Gentiles, all humanity in disobedience and defiance, we could say, that he might have mercy on all. The eschatology that God shows is the mercy that he showed in the eschatological moment called the cross and the Christ event. That's what defines you. I was crucified with Christ. That's what defines me. I now share his history. That's what defines me. So then, I'm referring to a quote which I may get into in more depth on Sunday about history, though having relevance, is insufficient in itself. It's certainly insufficient to describe, define you and me and all people. Even though history is relevant in many levels and important, there's something beyond history that is so far above history that we could say it's sort of like God saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways not yours. That's a distinction. And so... Because of the Christ event, which is an eschatological event, the history of Israel's disobedience no longer is sufficient to define Israel as a people. So God has chosen not to define his people Israel after their history and their performance in history, their human performance in history under defiance and disobedience. But he's chosen rather to define his people after the eschatological event of the saving, atoning death of their Messiah and the resurrection of this same Jesus from the dead. So, as we have learned, history has relevance in many ways, but history itself is related to time, which is a creation, part of created reality. Time is part of created reality. And because God redeems and reconciles all of created reality, he redeems time. He redeems history from its downward trends. Jesus Christ's incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection happened within the course of history. As events within history. But it is what, occur, what that, that which occurred eschatologically and soteriologically, savingly in that event. It is something, in other words, that happened within the triune God and his own history or their own history that defines Israel and not Israel's history. The cross as a historical event is more than his, an historical event because there is there the intersection of time with eternity and of God's history with the history of mankind. In the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, is the intersection of the history of God and the history of man. Thankfully, and we can be very thankful for this, that which happens in God and in God's history is more important than that which happens in human history, in the course of what is called human events. Which is really all that are... If you want to compare the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and all the rest of those wonderful documents that undergird America's freedom, you can't compare them with the Word of God, because our founders did not have this eschatological perspective only the best kind of historical perspective. We're talking about a different thing here and what's needed today. So it's what occurred eschatologically and soteriologically in that event, a radically Christ-centered event that occurred within the triune God that defines Israel and not Israel's history. If Israel's history was defined, and if their their history defined Israel as a defiant and disobedient people, then perhaps God would have the right to abandon them. But that's not the way God views Israel. And in the famous speech of Stephen in Acts 7, where he goes into a radical rant against the leaders of Jerusalem, He fittingly summarized this history of Israel in the main. Now we're talking about Israel as a people in the main, the descendants of Abraham hereditarily and members of tribes like Benjamin or Gad or Dan or Asher and Judah, a real people, cultural people, historical people. He takes on these leaders just before he was thrown out of the city and stoned to death. And those who executed him first says the scripture laid their outer garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul who became of course, and who is the same as Paul act seven fifty eight. but consider Stephen's summation in acts seven. Are you listening, Stephen? Yes, you are. He said in verse 51, I'm going by the Holman Christian Standard Bible so that you don't think that I'm enhancing anything here, but he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so do you. That reminds me of all day long. Your history is defined by a resistance of the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You go by that history, they're going to be hurting people. Then he says in verse 53, you received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. What did they do? They gnashed on their teeth. They tearfully, because of mad anger, descended upon him and stoned him to death. The conclusion of Stephen's tirade summed up the history of Israel in the main, in the main, with these words, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your forefathers did, so do you. But the history, which ultimately involved not only the killing of those who announced the coming of the righteous one, but also their insistence that the righteous one himself be crucified. That history is still not sufficient to determine Israel's destiny. That which determined their destiny is the eschatological, soteriological event which occurred in history that being the very crucifixion of the righteous one which they insisted on <laughs> you talk about wow god's genius redeemed by the on the human side of the act by the worst act ever committed and it wasn't just committed by jews it was agreed to by gentiles he was in fact as the creed says crucified under pontius pilate pilate gave the directive, the symbolic Roman Empire, Roman Empire's representative, acting on behalf of Caesar. Such is the history of Israel. All day long, they have, Paul admits, as an Israeli, in the main, in general, by and large, except for a remnant Their history is marked by defiance and disobedience. But their destiny is not determined by their disobedience, but by God who imprisoned all Jews as well as all Gentiles in a historical category called disobedience in order that he could have eschatological mercy on them all. On them, including we, us all. Though the very event which they insisted upon in their defiance of God and rejection of his Messiah was the very event by which God showed them mercy. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, they're authoring their own salvation. These are weighty matters and we'll leave them for now, but our purpose at the moment is exposition. So we'll go to back to Romans 11 to be the second half to be, or not to be to be, or are you that is Paul is now addressing someone as he does throughout Romans from time to time. Are you now he's speaking to those who assume that God has rejected Israel, his people, because of the history of their defiance and disobedience. Which continues even in Paul's day. Which continues even in our day in, in many respects. But are, or are you unaware of what the scripture says. In a narrative about Elijah. How he pleads. This is a legal term. When someone in a court of law is a plaintiff. Someone is a defendant. Elijah took the place of a plaintiff. The word is related to a lawsuit. He put a lawsuit against Israel. In the Supreme Court of heaven, the heavenly Supreme Court before God, he has a gripe against Israel and he requires of God an execution of judgment. On behalf of him, the plaintiff and against Israel. And so Paul refers here to Israel. He actually has a plea. Here's his plea. It's a serious petition. Elijah says this, Lord, they have murdered your prophets. Sounds like Stephen's indictment. They've torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining. I myself alone am left remaining, meaning I am now a one-man remnant. (laughs) And they are seeking to kill me too. Now, we dealt with this not too long ago in Better Call Paul in the conclusion, but I don't have it all in print, so I'm kind of revamping and restructuring and expanding a little bit. Paul refers to Elijah's plea against Israel because it gets to the root of the complaint against Israel and the Jewish Christians in Rome made by Gentile Christians as they give an account of the history of Israel's apostasy. Israel was by and large apostate, and it began right in the wilderness, right in the desert after their glorious Liberation from Egypt. It began right there. Read about it. First Corinthians ten one, all the way through 19 and 20 and 21. Sacrificing to demons in the wilderness. Israel after the flesh. Ton Israel, Kata Sarka. Consider them, what they've done here. Paul said, but he said, these, all these things that Israel did are merely an instruction and an admonition and a warning to you upon whom the turn of the ages has come. The axis of two ages has come. You who have to live in the juncture of two ages, an evil age and a messianic age. How do you live in it? Will you take as a warning the evil behaviors of the people in the wilderness. Redeemed, yeah, through a glorious redemption but falling one by one in the wilderness and sometimes tens and 20,000s worth in the desert. So, Elijah pled with God against Israel. He acts as a plaintiff who institutes a lawsuit before the heavenly Supreme Court. Expecting a judgment to be pronounced and executed against apostate Israel under Ahab and Jezebel. Especially. But he also wants a judgment rendered for himself. It reminds me of what we dealt with recently when a Eli- when Joshua saw the captain of the Lord's host and he said, are you on our side or their side And the Lord answered, no. And it also reminds me of the two brothers that went to Jesus and said, please arbitrate over our inheritance because we're fighting over it. Our our father just died and we want to fight over the inheritance. That's one of the most despicable things when you see that happen. Oh, we just love dad. I want everything he gave, you know, that kind of thing. And then Jesus said, but who made me a judge or an arbiter over your affairs? Who made me a judge or arbiter? I didn't come for that reason. And then he turned to the rest of the crowd and said, beware of covetousness. An occasion for a lesson. So we, I want you to make a judgment against them and for me. Sounds like Gentile Christians now are under indictment by Paul. Make a decision for us against our Jewish brethren because they're rooted in Israel whom you have forsaken. That's a certain group of Gentile Christians, not all of them. And then he's already hammered some of the Jewish Christians finishing with Romans 10.21. Now he turns, he's, he's a brilliant orator here. He's got a tremendous thing in which he deals with both biases And so Paul also reveals the self-centeredness of Elijah as he makes that plea, I alone. That I alone strikes at the heart of the we alone of the opposing groups in Rome and perhaps every denomination and sect of so-called Christendom that really has a denomination because at the bottom line, it's all about we alone. We alone got it. Beware of that elitist arrogance as tetelestai phalanx as well. More people understand what I've been teaching you than you imagine across this world right now. Amazing. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit's doing this. It's not we alone. You might feel that way at a Christmas dinner, but it isn't we alone. I alone am left remaining, meaning I alone am the remnant. This strikes right at the heart of the opposing groups in Rome, one of which Paul Meniere, in his excellent book called The Obedience of Faith, characterized as, quote, the weak in faith. They were called the weak. Well, who called them the weak? Not themselves, those who styled themselves as the strong. And that was largely the Gentile, a Gentile group of Christians and a Jewish group, too, partly Jewish, but mostly Gentile, who said, We don't need those scrupulous rules that these guys follow, especially with regard to diet, food and drink, and calendar, holy days of obligation. That's for the weak. They're weak, but they're after all, they're rooted in a people that God has forsaken, aren't they? And on the other hand, you have the Jewish Christians that look at these pagan people that came in with no ceremony and no ritual, no ritual circumcision. And they said, well, these people, how dare they? They need to be scrupulous like we are according to Moses' law. And so there was this double bias going on. There were five groups in Rome. There was also a group of Christians that were truly strong and didn't adhere to a lot of those scruples any longer because you really don't have to. But they didn't judge people who still did because they understood it as a matter of conscience that only God can deal with. And Paul was among the strong. He was a Jewish Christian but was also identified very strongly with the Gentiles because he no longer had to keep certain holy days and he no longer had to go by the kosher laws. In fact, he lambasted Peter for relapsing into that in Antioch. We're going to read about maybe if we get to Galatians, if, And so the strong, mostly Gentiles, who called themselves strong because they didn't have to maintain the traditions that many of their weak Jewish brethren did and had to keep with regard to food and drink and calendrical days of obligation, days on the calendar that they marked as special. The two opposing factions weren't the whole of the saints in Rome, however. And again, this book was very helpful to me. It's a very short one, but very helpful. Paul Meneer, in his Obedience of Faith, Categorized, the doubters also was a middle group. They were doubting. They didn't know whether or not they should have the conscientious courage to reject those scruples or to maintain them. And so they doubted, and they kind of watched both groups. So the doubters were in the middle. The final two categories belong to such people as those whom Paul listed in his greetings in Romans 16. That was... Gentiles, strong believers, mostly Gentiles, who did not despise their Jewish brethren for keeping those things, and Jewish brethren who did still hold on to some of those scruples, culturally speaking, but did not judge their Gentile brethren. So there was a lot of people that got the point. They get it. But these two groups, however, that Paul has to address are very importantly addressed because a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. These two groups had the potential for destroying the whole fellowship of the saints, the unity, Christian unity, the unity integrity of the saints in Rome, which would have then had a terribly downgraded mission emphasis. The mission would have suffered. Paul's mission, he knew, was not to reach everybody in the world, but it was to bring the gospel to bear on all the nations so that there would be, among all the nations, a proleptic group of people that believed as a preview of all the nations coming in worship to God. That was his mission. He wasn't so arrogant as to think, if I don't preach, they'll go to hell, that kind of a thing, which is just arrogance. So the doubters, the weak in faith who did not condemn the strong, and the strong in faith who didn't despise the weak. But on the other hand, there were the so-called self-identified strong who did despise the weak, and the weak who judged the strong. So Paul's doing this all along. He doesn't announce, hey, this is what I'm doing, but this is what he's doing. We have to do an intentionality analysis of the apostle here. And so Paul belonged to the fifth category, which we would call the strong in faith, which includes Jewish Christians. So it's not a cut and dry thing where it's only Christian Jews and only Gentile Christians who do such and such a thing. But he was among those who no longer needed to hold on to scrupulous habits of other Jewish believers, but who refused to despise them for it. In fact, he said circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Neither one of them. But a faith that works by love, that's what counts. The two factions, however, that harbored ressentiment were like the yeast that can eventually leaven the whole batch of dough 1 Corinthians 5 6, Galatians 5 9. And so Paul intends to destroy the hidden root of the resentiment, and the fruit of which is division and factiousness. The toxic root, therefore, of this largely Gentile resentiment ran deeper than a despising of scrupulous Jewish and sometimes Gentile Christians. There was also a group of Gentile Christians who from their background in pagan ritual, also had calendar dates and new moons and things to follow after and dietary restrictions of food and drink. And so there were it wasn't just a clearly defined and delineated line in every one of these things. But Paul's getting to the heart of all of it. The Resonement was a prejudice against Israel per se on the part of many Gentiles in Rome, Gentile Christians that was partly rooted, now follow my thinking here, partly rooted in historical facts. Look at what they've done. Elijah says the same. They killed all the prophets. There wasn't a prophet they didn't persecute. Name them, they were persecuted. They killed the the ones who predicted the coming of the Messiah, especially the Messianic prophets were killed by them. So don't they deserve, and they're trying to kill me, Elijah says, don't they deserve a destructive judgment? Part of their prejudice then is rooted in historical facts, but lacked eschatological reality. Israel in the main had indeed behaved badly throughout its history beginning with their history in the desert, following their glorious deliverance from Egypt. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, which is worth rereading, Paul catalogs some of the failures of that idolatrous people, whom he called Ton Israel Katasarka, Israel, according to the flesh. And he was doing, I think he was doing a little bit of wordplay here using the word flesh as hereditary descent from Abraham, but he was also using the word flesh and it's capital F controlled by the hijacked law, the sin hijacked law, the flesh as an adversarial cosmic enemy but he used their behavior their livingness their disapproved livingness as a warning to the saints in Corinth against certain behaviors 1 Corinthians 10, 11 so the litany of offenses of which israel was guilty was expressive of what hebrews 3:12 calls a diseased heart of unbelief the word evil there is more like evil, evil in the sense of dis, diseased a diseased heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. That was the problem. But anti-Israeli or anti-Jewish sentiment, which is akin to what people call anti-Semitism today, is rooted in merely historical and not eschatological facts. It's also rooted in semi-truthful and revised historical facts and anti-semitism is also rooted in downright outright lies such as that horrible document called the protocols of the elders of Zion which is a false document that made the Jews look like they were trying to control the world and politics and it's a strange thing today and it's really despicable to me at least that a very ugly anti-Semitism is rooted in some groups who claim a Christian identity. In fact, they might even call themselves the Christian identity movement. These groups are by no means Christian. We can judge that. They're no means, by no means Christian, because they're rooted in bitter hatred rather than grounded in love. Their Christian identity is belied by their neglect of Christ as the Redeemer of Israel, as well as all the nations. What is needed today is a theology with an eschatological viewpoint that judges on the basis of what eschatologically occurred. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The love of Christ now controls me, Paul said, because I have come to judge or determine that if one died for all, then all died. We could say it's not nice to talk about dead people. We all died. So we've considered Elijah's plea, but let's go on. Paul goes on in 11. You're thinking, what was the divine response to this? And that's what Paul says in verse 4. But what was the divine response to him? Picture the judge on the bench. He's got to make a ruling here. Yahweh says this. I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Ba'ah, Baal, the false god that was sponsored by state religion and enforced by the Department of Justice under Jezebel a religion. Eschatologically, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Historically, many knees bow to Baal. Baal is just the opposite of... He's also called Belial. He's the antithesis of Christ. And there are people who name the name of Christ, but worship another Jesus and bow their knee to Belial. There are things that they genuflect to, things that they fear, things that they place their confidence in, which are not Christ and not God. So I've referred more than once to Karl Barth's insight on these 7,000 reservists. I think it bears repetition here as well as an expansion of his quote. And again, I like to read theologians not just to take what they say completely, but to engage in a critical, realistic engagement with them. Say, wow. Like when I think of Moltmann, I think, man, there's 95% all right. And then there's 5% that kind of crosses over into a political involvement that's rooted in some strange utopian ideas that he doesn't hold to, but they infect—they infected some of what I think he taught. I'm not sure, but... So it's an engagement. So I engage with Karl Barth here, critically. And I think it bears repetition to quote what he says because this will prove significant to where we're going from here in 2019. I see where we're going. Don't worry about that. I see where we're going. But don't place confidence in that. But your confidence in God. But he says on, in his Romans, the epistle, I think it's called the epistle of Paul to the Romans, his commentary. Listen carefully to what he says. The answer to God, to Elijah, the answer of God to Elijah, does not mean that there are a number of men who know God but that there is no limit to the number of those who are known by him. It does not mean that there are just 7,000 men upon whom God has mercy. It means that his mercy is infinite. It's kind of like when a mother says, I told you 50,000 times. Means I told you infinitely enough. It does not mean that there, and then he goes on to say this. It does not mean, I didn't quote this the last times I quoted it. It does not mean that there exists a calculable number of men who are at peace within themselves it means that the oneness of god triumphs over the whole questionableness of the history of the church i would amend and expand this quote for two purposes there's re- there's reason why i would both amend and expand this while leaving it as an excellent quote over and lo- oh, by and large first i'd amend the quote to apply specifically to what he calls the questionableness of the history of the church and say the question of the history of Israel, which is triumphed over by the oneness of God. Listen up, Israel. The Lord our God is one. He's not divided. He's not divided within himself. The oneness of God means that for one thing, God is love and he can't not... Love, God is merciful and he can't not show mercy. So because of that, all the human acts that go into the events and incidents of history are triumphed over by what God does in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. What I come out with from this is the history of God is greater than the history of men, just as God's thoughts are higher than men's thoughts and his ways infinitely higher than men's ways. Yahweh says this through again, his prophet Isaiah in 55.8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is Yahweh's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may be very grateful for this because what happens in our history is trumped, to use a playing card analogy, by God's history in Christ. What happens in our history is triumphed over by God's history in Christ and in the spirit. Infinitely more significant, therefore, than the fact that we are a part of human history is the reality that we are now a part of Jesus Christ's history. For we have been crucified with him. We were buried with him. We were raised together with him. We are therefore partakers of the events and the incidents that make up God's history and the history of the man, Christ Jesus. For us, the only human history that triumphs over all other histories is the history of the one man, Christ Jesus, who bears the destiny of all humankind. God could have said I got 50,000. I got 100,000. He said he's saying I have mercy on all. That's where he's going. Again, if you see where this is leading, you got Romans 11:32 to always go to. It's a go-to thing. The sole mediator between God and man who participates both in the human history and divine history is the man Christ Jesus. This is the greatest history lesson we could be taught. This is the greatest history lesson. It's a history lesson which Elijah learned. It's a history lesson which Paul schools the biased saints in Rome. It's a history lesson that the Holy Spirit through Paul schools us in, in all our own times and places. Once we shared the history of the first Adam, Protos, Adam. Now we share the history of the last Adam, called Eschaton, Adam. You're beginning to get a hint of what 2019 will be for us. Operation Epsilon, Greek letter E. Operation Epsilon. You say, I thought we were in the delta phase of Romans. We are, but there's something past delta. Epsilon. Epsilon is a main factor in a mathematical science called calculus that goes infinitely beyond where we've been so far, which you might call arithmetic. Ready for calculus? Calculus is not about a calculable number. It's about an incalculable redemption. And mercy now, I don't know much about calculus in fact like Herman's hermits I don't know much about algebra either but this is biblical calculus this is what the theological functional specialty of horizons is all about as I'm applying it when we have the perspective of God's thoughts we see a horizon in which not a calculable number of people and a percentage of creation are saved, but an incalculable number and 100% of created reality in all of its times is reconciled, rectified, redeemed, and transfigured. It's not a matter of a doctrine against another doctrine. It's a matter of a place to view from heaven's thoughts versus another place to view, which is the thoughts of men. You can take the same doctrine and agree on the doctrine, but one has a historical perspective and another an eschatological perspective. I wouldn't dare to bring a charge against any of you or anyone in the world or anyone in history in all of its times to God on the basis of historical facts only, now that I know the eschatological fact. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging their trespasses to them. See what I'm saying? I think you see what happens is is it's something happens in you that conversion would be a silly word to describe it because it has it's so far beyond what we consider is a conversion. It's a a transformation comes close. Transfiguration may be even better. It's a transfigured viewpoint. And he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, like the heavens above versus the earth below. So we're talking about a thought that has a perspective and a horizon, a horizon that it views from the heavenly perspective, which is the perspective of God in Christ. God's oneness is the oneness of his Trinitarian love his Trinitarian, passionate, philanthropic love in which there was no division in God in the intention to save all of created reality and redeem it and transfigure it. And so when we have the perspective of God's thoughts, we see a horizon in which not a calculable number of people and a percentage of creation are saved, but rather an incalculable number, infinite number, unlimited number, and 100% of humanity and creation in all of their times being reconciled, rectified, redeemed, and transfigured or glorified. So in conclusion, let's do this. This will be, wow, conclusion. The word for bend the knee, again, I've alluded to this in the beginning of the message or halfway through maybe, this word is kampo, K-A-M-P-T-O, kampto, really, looks like this in the Greek, it'll be our Greek word study for the night, kampto, K-A-M-P-T-O, which would be our English transliteration. Camto accent here. Campto. That word that's used there for bending the knee to Baal, or Baal, as he's called, Belial, the antithesis of Christ, is the same word deployed in Romans 14.11. Also, Philippians 2.10, both rooted in Isaiah 45.23 in the Septuagint, speaking of the universal genuflection or the universal bending of the knee at the name of Jesus, the opposite of Baal, which is in turn accompanied by the universal Holy Spirit-inspired, praise-filled acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. Every knee without exception will bend, every tongue without exception will will worshipfully and praisefully acknowledge that there is but one true God and that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. So the word kempto used here for the bowing of the knee of Baal can be an historical reality, but the eschatological reality at the end of history is the bending of every knee and the pledging of every tongue of allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Lord. The bending of the knee to Baal in the course of history will be replaced by the bending of every knee to Jesus in the eschatological moment. We are now ready for Operation Epsilon. Epsilon. Tetelesti phalanx. Operation Epsilon. What we've studied up to this point is like arithmetic. Where we're going is calculus. I'm using an analogy. What is Operation Epsilon? Hint, eschatology versus merely history. doesn't say history is not important, but as a perspective, it's much different. What is Operation Epsilon? Perhaps a New Year's message can bring at least the beginning of an answer to that question. See some of you then. If not, it'll be recorded. So thank you, Father, for the remarkable attentiveness that you allowed me to see tonight, and may this historical lesson, may this lesson of history really be brought to bear in our hearts. Grant us a perspective that judges on the basis of eschatology, not merely history, and help us to know nothing. But Jesus Christ and him crucified where history and eschatology join together so that eschatology trumps history, even as the oneness of God triumphs over the sinfulness of man.